a lot of treatment goals for neurodivergent people, kids especially, but everyone really focus on, again, you're identified because you were inconveniencing the adults. So your treatment is to make you stop inconveniencing the adults instead of here are the things that you struggle with. How do we support you to have the best version of your own life? Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. All right, before we begin, I would love to share with you this review from a listener on the Apple Podcast platform. Their name looks like a bunch of randomly typed in letters. It's G-G-W-Y-I-N-D-D-T-G-1-2-3. And if that is your actual name, I apologize for assuming otherwise. Anyway, the review is entitled My Favorite ADHD Podcast. As a late diagnosed woman and small business owner, this podcast has helped me so much over the last 15 months. Honestly, it's the only ADHD podcast I have stuck with due to the highly valuable experiences shared by both Katie and her guests, as well as the confidence and pace of conversation. I'm now exploring an autism diagnosis and would love to hear more ADHD autistic women interviews if possible. 10 out of 10 would recommend, lol. Well, thank you for this review. I really, really appreciate the time and effort it takes to stop what you are doing and put your thoughts into words like this. And you are going to love today's interview because we talk a lot about ADHD and autism and the diagnosis process as well as best practices with assessment and treatment. So stick with us today. Okay, here we are at episode 176, in which I interview Dr. Amy Marshall. Dr. Marshall has been a licensed psychologist since 2016. She's a clinical advisor for ADHD Online and currently owns a private practice, RMH Therapy. Her clinical specializations include trauma-informed care, neurodiversity-affirming care, rural mental health, and telemental health. Dr. Marshall is also the author of several books, including her most recent children's book about Slipper, a neurodivergent penguin. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And there's also a link to her Etsy store where she sells Slipper stuffies. They are unbelievably cute. You have to go check it out for yourself. And she also wrote the soon-to-be-released A Clinician's Guide to Supporting Autistic Clients. And there's a link to pre-order that book in the show notes. Dr. Marshall and I discuss what the term neurodiversity affirming means when it comes to the treatment of autism and ADHD, and we discuss the ways in which she's working to make telemental health more accessible for neurodivergent clients. We talk about some of the challenges she faced when seeking her own diagnosis of autism a few years ago, as well as some of the challenges for clients when seeking autism diagnoses. And we talk about the current and future landscape of telemental health, as well as how to find accessible ethical online therapy. It's the Wild West out there. All right, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Amy Marshall. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. 
a year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. Well, welcome, Dr. Amy Marshall. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I will admit, as I was doing a little bit of background research, I couldn't keep track of all the (laughs) different organizations that you are affiliated with. So yes, I'm very busy, (laughs) (laughs) which is no surprise on this podcast. So I initially found out about you through ADHD online. You're the lead psychologist there, correct? I'm one of their psychologists, and I'm also a a clinical advisor. Um, So basically, I do a number of the ADHD assessments for ADHD online, and then I also do, um, like, if another psychologist needs to consult on an assessment, you know, the assessment is kind of a living document. We're kind of always updating it, always trying to make it better. I, I come in and I say, you know, wording the question this way is better or or tweaking this or, you know, those kind of things. Awesome. Um, amazing. Such I love ADHD online. I love everything that they're doing. Yeah, me too, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but OK, so first of all, I want to hear about your diagnosis story, because you are certainly not the first or the last clinician I've interviewed who worked with ADHD and autistic children for a long time before connecting the dots in your own life. So you were diagnosed not that long ago, what, two years ago? Right. In 2020. So about three years now. Oh, OK. Yeah. And during the pandemic, I kind of hit my, um, you know, something's something's up here. <laughs> right? Well, I think you had talked about it, I think, on Lindsay's podcast about the, uh, the need surpassing the resources, right? Yep. When demands exceed resources, that's when we see things popping up. Right. And, and sort of, you know, it's so interesting to think about, like, what is the catalyst that led to the diagnosis? Because for me, it was the pandemic. Absolutely. And, you know, I think most, you know, perimenopause, all of those types, you know, times when women tend to get diagnosed. So what were having worked so much with children, and now adults, like, what were some of those things that you were most connecting to where you thought, okay, this is definitely something to look into? Well, I was just, I was having more trouble kind of zeroing in on and like finishing what I start, you know, the trail of incomplete projects behind me was starting to include things that really couldn't be left behind me. And uh, I got, I got a lot more hyperactive as well, just not being able to sit still. I think some of that it's less about demands exceeding resources and more about before I went fully telehealth, I was working with a lot of little kids. So a lot of the therapy I was providing was play-based. And so I was always moving around. I gave it up at some point, but I used to wear one of those steps watches and I could get three to 5,000 steps in one session, depending on what the child wanted to do that day or depending on what direction our session took. So I think 
a lot of it was just my environment and my my lifestyle and my career just made it really easy to get by and it didn't look like a problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> One of the things you said in an interview recently that was so, I just found was so profound and and so beautifully articulated what's wrong in assessment these days, right? Where you were talking about assessment of autism should be less about determining what it looks like to an observer and more about asking what it feels like to be an autistic person. And I feel like you could definitely say the same thing for ADHD. Absolutely. I mean, I will say when it comes to the assessment side of things, I don't think either is really done fantastically. I think we have a lot of work to do as a field. But for example, um, one of the assessments that we give when we're, well, not everybody gives this, but I use the Connors uh, for ADHD assessment with kids. And that's that's a pretty popular, it's well validated. Um, a lot of people like it. And kids starting at age eight can complete a self-report form. So as long as the child is at least eight years old, they're telling me, here's what my experience is. Here's what's going on inside of my brain and my body versus that I have not been able to find an autism rating scale for children that even has a self-report form. The the equivalent to the Connors has parent and teacher, but there's no option for self-report. So essentially, you know, kids are getting diagnosed and most of the information, we just assume that they're not going to provide it. We're going to go off of what adults are saying about them. And observational information is not irrelevant, but it's definitely not the whole picture. And it's a pretty huge oversight that we just, it's just standard to prioritize. And even for adult assessment, ADHD and autism, again, I I find this more with autism than ADHD, but happens with both, but really prioritizes what we call collateral data. So Uh, A lot of providers will say, well, I can't assess you unless you will let me talk to someone who knows you really well and I can get their perspective on your symptoms. And again, that information can be helpful. Um, There's an adult equivalent of the Connors that is actually made by the same people, the Connors Adult ADHD Rating Scales that has an observer form that I absolutely use. But there's a lot of well, the observer didn't see the symptoms that you're reporting, therefore I'm not going to diagnose you. Instead of the observer didn't see the symptoms you're reporting, let's talk about masking. Or for autism evaluations, I mean, I was I was actually assessed for autism twice because the first time they said that I clearly did not have it. And some of that was based on that they talked to my husband and he gets along with me just fine, which apparently autistic people can't get along with their spouse. I don't know. I don't know. But they specifically mentioned me being married and they said that most autistic people aren't married. And I'm like, well, I know a lot of autistic people who are married. That's kind of a crappy thing to say to someone. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think it's all of that. I don't even know what it's called. Success stigma always seems to come out with that idea of like, you can't possibly have ADHD, you can't possibly have autism, because you have a graduate degree, or you can make eye contact, or you can have relationships or all of those things where it's like, so basically, all the good thing, all the positive aspects of my life are evidence that I couldn't possibly have this. (laughs) Until recently, unless you were failing school as a child, 
they wouldn't diagnose you with ADHD at all, that it was considered if you have ADHD, you cannot be academically successful. And yeah, ADHD impacts learning. And yes, many people with ADHD do struggle in school, but it's not a requirement. Yeah, I've talked about this on the podcast before because, you know, with I have a son and a daughter. And so I was diagnosed before either of them. And when I was diagnosed, I immediately looked at my son and said, of course, this is ADHD. I saw so many similarities in how he and I learn in school and and I didn't do tremendously in school. I basically was kind of a an A or an F kind of student. Um, and, uh, but my daughter, I never thought she had ADHD. And it immediately, you know, she does very, very well in school, very, very high achieving perfectionist. And then when I started the podcast, and I started having these conversations with women who were diagnosed in adulthood, and seeing that pattern over and over and over again of really, really high grades, perfectionism, people pleasing, high anxiety, and that white knuckling element that I would I looked at her and thought, Oh, oh, my goodness, yes, that's her to a T. And I was trying to explain this when I was getting accommodations for her in school, trying to explain this to her, the school psychologist and her teachers during the 504 meeting, because she was getting 90s, right? And so they were kind of like, why are we here? Why do you need accommodations if your child is succeeding academically? And it just felt like there was no language around at what cost, you know, it was like, all they seemed to care about was that, oh, accommodations are for kids who are not getting the grades. And it was just, it felt really surreal to be in the room with them at that moment of just being like, no, there's actually, you know, the fact that she comes home and cries if she gets a 75, it's not necessarily like a good thing. It's not good for her mental health, but mental health doesn't seem to come into that. It feels like they want her to tank her grades. Well, I think it's again, is that evident, you know, when we look for evidence, quote unquote, in childhood, we're just looking in all the wrong places a lot of the time for girls, especially. A lot of it for, well, this happens for adults too, but for kids, we really frame any neurodivergence as what problems are, not not how are you doing, but what problems are you causing for the adults? And if you're not causing problems for the adults, then you're fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's like a lot of, um, and I mean, this could be a whole other rant, but you know, you get the, uh, you know, kids these days, which first of all, we've been literally saying for thousands of years, but second of all, you get the, there's been an emergence that I think is a good thing with like the positive discipline, gentle parenting, attachment focused parenting that really moves away from a lot of punitive ideas that have been really prevalent for a long time. And, you know, you get the people who say, well, I would never have acted out like that when I was a kid. And I I always, oh, why not? Oh, I wouldn't dare because my father would have, would have what? What were you scared that your father was going to do that that child doesn't have to be afraid of? Because I think this is better. <laughs> mm, right? Yeah, I know. We talk, my husband and I talk about that with food pickiness, because he and I grew up of the generation where like, you did not, you you cleaned your plate. It didn't matter if you liked what you were eating or not. You ate it. You eat what I made and you will eat all of it. <laughs> And so as parents, we were kind of like, our kids are spoiled, they don't touch, you know, like we were looking at it in such this antiquated way and really had to change our thinking around the relationship that they were having to food. And and I was like, oh, yeah, no, I had all sorts of sensory issues. I just had to ignore them and push through. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So I really, I am so excited about the Clinician's Guide to Supporting Autistic Clients that's coming out in April. Can we talk about it? Because I, I mean, I'm sure my podcast listeners are tired of hearing me talk about this, but I'm, I'm in grad school right now to become a mental health counselor. And so it's really, really fascinating to me how neurodivergence just isn't part of the curriculum. And, uh, and yet I'm seeing it everywhere. It's all about stop it. <laughs> right? Well, and not only that, but like, I'm seeing so many, like every case study, it's like I'm diagnosing every single case study with ADHD. They're like former teacher, you know, retired, depression and anxiety and retirement. And I'm like, oh, that's clearly ADHD. You know, like I'm seeing it everywhere. And I'm like, am I missing something? Or is it just everywhere and nobody's talking about it? So I love the fact that you're actually doing some of these really sort of specific treatment, not only treatment recommendations, but I think also you're just this idea of like not necessarily moving away from treating autism and ADHD and more of like neurodiversity, your neurodivergence affirming. And so can you talk about like, what is the difference there? So I, I know the, the book has specific recommendations and that's kind of, uh, um, I'm kind of, I'm mixed on because it, first of all, People want tools. People want actionable counselors, therapists, psychologists are always like, okay, but then what should I, I'm in a session. What do I do right now? And, and I get that. And it's a marketing thing, but I'm, I'm also like, it's less about do X, Y, Z neurodiversity or neurodivergence affirming mental health care isn't about what specific tools you use in the session. It's about your overarching philosophy and your overarching approach to treatment, which is shifting away from this pathological medical model of something is wrong with you that we need to fix and more about embracing the fact that so neurodivergence is the people whose brains fall outside of that neurotypical umbrella, you know, there's no such thing as normal, but this is like what society expects from you. And the neurodivergent people are the people whose brains don't automatically conform to that. And neurodiversity is everybody. So we're, you know, neurodiversity is the full, has includes everybody, neurotypical, neurodivergent. Like we're all, we're all part of neurodiversity, but only about, according to the CDC, only about 20% of us are neurodivergent. So our brains don't fit the expectation, which is probably why that's the expectation. It is the majority of people, but that doesn't mean we say, okay, 80% of people fit in this box. So this box is going to be the only box that, you know, this is the only place that anybody can sit. And so 20% of people are just going to be really uncomfortable. So being neurodiversity affirming is embracing the idea that it's not a bad thing. It's not a problem to be fixed if you don't fit in that box. Like that's okay. And it's okay to have support needs. It's okay if your neurodivergence disables you and you can't contribute to capitalism because why is that the system anyway? It's okay if your neurodivergence has aspects that make your life better. You know, my my whole, <laughs> I firmly believe that my business is where it is because of the way that I hyper-focus and because of drive that I don't think I would have if I wasn't neurodivergent. It's not that toxic positivity. This is secretly a superpower and don't let anyone ever say anything negative. It's like, well, there are also support needs and that's like holding both of those things. And it's, it's okay if you don't see your neurodivergence as a strength, 
but essentially we're not saying you're bad, wrong, or broken. We're, we're just honoring what your needs are. And it's shifting because a lot of treatment goals for neurodivergent people, kids especially, but everyone really focus on, again, you're identified because you were inconveniencing the adults. So your treatment is to make you stop inconveniencing the adults instead of here are the things that you struggle with. How do we support you to have the best version of your own life? And so, you know, I, I do come in with here are some specific things you can do. And here is how those things can be neurodiversity affirming. But the, the main message is that shift of the mindset away from we need to fix you to no, you're fine. You're <laughs> how do we support you? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You know, I, I, as a coach, have worked with so many women who have said I had a terrible experience in therapy. And, and I get it because I certainly, as somebody who was diagnosed since university with, di with depression and anxiety, never felt like it fit, always felt like there was something else happening, um, but also constantly was wondering what's wrong with me. You know, and I feel like there was a lot happening in therapy that was like much more ac acceptance based and less dealing with, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, like they're, you know, sort of that nice fine balance between working on that frustration, that executive function and finding those tools. But at the same time, like you said, there's nothing wrong with you, right? Nothing wrong. Again, not that toxic positivity of no, nothing's wrong. Um, but just like you, you're not a problem to be solved. You're a person. Right? Yeah. yeah. But I also feel like thinking about like, what are some of the approaches that work really, really well with neurodivergent clients and thinking about that a lot, because the whole reason I've gone from coaching into counseling is because I think there is a lot of toxic positivity in coaching. And there isn't a lot of contextual work in terms of why you are feeling the way you are feeling and what's leading up to that, right? So I feel like, you know, there's a, there needs to be a more holistic approach. But I'm also curious about like, what are some of those unintentional harms that are being done in terms of like best practices? Well, when it comes to autism, first of all, the, the so-called gold standard of autism treatment was designed to cure autism and to make autistic kids stop being autistic. First of all, autistic people are more likely to have trauma than the rest of the population and are more likely to have a mental health disorder as a result of their trauma. So I forget the exact number, but is it something like 5% of people have PTSD, but 25% of autistic people have PTSD and 50% of autistic people who were put through applied behavioral analysis therapy have PTSD. So basically this treatment that is marketed as best practice and gold standard, if you're listening with audio and not video, I'm air quoting the, the hell out of this sentence, um, 
doubles your risk of developing post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's considered the best option. Like, sit with that for a second. The best thing we can offer you is going to make you twice as likely to be traumatized. Yeah. But that's the best. And that's what you should do. And And neurodiversity affirming approaches are also like by nature, you can't be neurodiversity affirming and not also be intersectional in your awareness. You know, it's it's neurodivergence related disabilities. It's disability justice as the umbrella term of of all the different types of disabilities. It's it's racial justice. It's, you know, gender justice. It's LGBTQ plus justice. If you're not you know, if you're like, I'm neurodiversity affirming, but you're also still ascribing to really racist ideas, you're not really neurodiversity affirming. You have to be aware of all those different things and the way that all those things intersect and being aware of the system's issues that contribute to why the system is so harmful. I'm not the voice on this. I just think it's something we should all be aware of. So go listen to other people, not me. But there is discussion in in the black autistic community specifically that we are aware that ABA increases risk of trauma and also my black son has loud public meltdowns and ABA will make him stop having meltdowns in public very quickly and I'm worried a cop is going to come and murder him and I've seen in in autistic spaces I've seen black parents get screamed at by white autistic people you're traumatizing your child instead of it's pretty messed up that their choices are increase my child's risk of being killed by the police or put my child in a therapy known to be traumatizing but they're more likely to survive into adulthood like why are those the options so it's the whole awareness of how everything intersects and connects and the the larger systems that we need to break down for that Damn. Sit with that for a minute, right? It's so true, right? Anytime you are surfing along with convention, you should question it and you should think about application and all of that, right? And I think there is a lot of that dogma exists in countercultures just as much as it does in traditional, you know? And so I see it a lot in like body image and body positivity movement. There's like a lot of dogma there that can end up being, you know, feeling really bullying and and exclusive so wow yeah speaking of intersectionalism i follow a couple of uh, physically disabled individuals and i've seen them get ripped apart by the body positive movement for expressing i get frustrated with things that my body's not able to do it's like how dare you we love our bodies all bodies are good and it's like i'm not saying bodies are are bad. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not feeding into any of that negative, like any of that like harmful stuff, but people are allowed to also have opinions about themselves and people are allowed to be frustrated <laughs> and people are allowed to narrate their own experience the way that fits for them. And, you know, we're not just, we're not just saying this is, the, you know, this, this aspect is harmful. Let's just throw it out. It's, this is harmful what is the underlying system that's allowing it, that's making it thrive, that's making it feel necessary? And how do we get rid of that? And not just this thing is bad, so we throw it out. Like if if it's propping some, I mean, I had, before I got treatment for ADHD, I had a lot of anxiety. 
And that's because the anxiety was propping me up. (laughs) I call it load-bearing anxiety. It was serving a purpose. And as the ADHD stuff has become more managed, I've been less anxious because it was no longer serving a purpose. So what systems like, or what, what need is this propping up? And how do we meet that need in a safe, healthy, justice-oriented, intersectional way so that we can get rid of the harmful system without inadvertently causing a different kind of harm? Because it, was, it wasn't it was doing it in a healthy way or a good way, but it was doing something. Mm, yeah, right. I was just having a conversation with a, another guest who is a psychologist talking about, you know, neurodivergent anxiety and how oftentimes it looks very different from textbook anxiety in terms of there's not always worry involved. A lot of it has to do with holding things in your brain and thinking about them all the time because you're worried about forgetting them or you're worried about losing them, right? Or you're also thinking about, you know, scripting and anticipating what's going to happen. Like so much of masking is about that hypervigilance you know, and so it does, it's, again, it's like quest really, really getting to the root of behaviors and questioning, like, what purpose do they serve? Oh, wow. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps. Uh- <laughs> there are bad reasons that certain things are in place, like the entire approach, like the whole autism industry is we need to, we need to get rid of these people, but it's, it's eugenics, like that's, that's where it comes from. And that's bad. And also the systems are propped up because they end up being the only option or they end up being my child is my, my child is stimming in a way that's injuring them. They need to stop doing that. And this resource promises to help with that. Or my my child is having public meltdowns and I'm worried about police brutality. Like this promises to fix the immediate issue of keeping them physically safe and you know, I'm not I'm not saying that's the good way to keep people safe. I'm saying when you're one person, particularly when you're a parent just trying to keep your child alive, you're doing your best. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, it reminds me of working with binge eating, you know, when I would work exclusively around binge eating and I would have parents who would be terrified, you know, that their child was already binge eating. And this is terrible. This is bad. How do we stop it? Right. And like the first thing we had to do was acknowledge that binge eating is self-care. Right. And so can we get to a place before we even begin to recognize that your child is taking care of themselves in the only way they know how right now? So like, let's appreciate the fact that they are taking care of themselves before we then move to perhaps some healthier options. But yeah, it was like, again, realizing the purpose that these things, these behaviors serve. Oh, I mentioned earlier, like the positive discipline movement. Supernova Mama is a voice that I follow within that movement. Um, she and uh, both of her children, and I believe her husband also, they're all all autistic. And I think there's some ADHD in there. Her thing that she always, well, she has a lot of things that she says a lot that are very helpful and, you know, go follow her. But she one of the things she says a lot is all behavior is communication and all behavior meets a need. So you can't just say this behavior is bad. Stop it. You have to say this behavior is harmful because of X, Y, Z. But what are you trying to tell me with this behavior? And what need is this behavior meeting for you? Because when you realize what the behavior is communicating for a need, then you can say, oh, okay, yourself, the binge eating is your self-care to meet this need okay, here are some healthier skills you can start to build 
and then you won't have the need to to do the more harmful behavior. Right? Or even just in the context of school and avoidant behavior, right? Avoidant behavior or no kid wants to do poorly. So you always have to assume that there is a barrier in the way if they're not meeting their own potential. Even though I should never say that word because I hate that word. But <laughs> a lot of baggage around that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. If they're struggling, if they're having a hard time, if they're, Yeah. The school system, by the way, is a nightmare for a neurotypical child. And then you throw neurodivergent kids in there and then you're like, why does that like, you know, in hindsight, it's kind of messed up that I, I'll I remember being a kid and people asking me about school and being like, oh, ha, 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 school sucks. Right. And it's like it's kind of messed up that we just expect kids to hate school when that's where they end up spending a pretty big chunk of their time. They're just expected to hate it. Well, I feel like as women, our our entire lives were told to lower our expectations around things that suck, right? Motherhood, uh, menopause, you know, all, you know, just being around men, like co-ed spaces, like it's always about like, yeah, it sucks. (laughs) There's just such this collective shoulder shrugging around so many elements. The, The guy who like does next to nothing of consequence but you're supposed he's oh he's such a great man he doesn't hit you and it's like that's the bar (laughs) doesn't hit me is the bar (laughs) oh yeah excuse me Uh, But I think about like intern culture and all of these ways where you're sort of like, yeah, you just got to, you know, you got to grit your teeth or even, you know, in just talking about like practicum and that we, you know, having all these conversations around how you're unable to advocate for your mental health and how ironic it is that practicum is so terrible for, you know, or even just doctors in internships and, you know, and the hours that nurses do, like, it's just all of these healthcare providers who are in these terrible situations for their mental health. And yet you're kind of like, well, it's boot camp. That's how you get through it. Why'd you go into this field? Like, okay. Right. And, and then, and then they, so then they say, if you don't like it, why are you in this line of work? And then they say, why do we have a shortage? (laughs) On a completely unrelated note, why do we have a shortage? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, oh yeah, you're you're a nurse and and you get just underpaid and mistreated all the time and you know, people dump on you and you're supposed to just work 12-hour shifts that are rotating. So like one day you're working 8 to 8 in the morning, like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then two days later, you're supposed to work 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. And oh, just do, if you don't like it, you should leave. How come we don't have enough nurses? <laughs> it's well, and then you know, and then you think about it. All the fields that tend to attract people with ADHD are teaching, nursing, social work, like all of these careers where they're paid terribly, and the expectations are for them to be, you know, selfless and angelic at all times. So. Now, one of the things you talk about as well in in the book, uh, in the clinician's guide, is is advocating for accommodations, right? And and kind of what role do clinicians and therapists play as advocates for autistic clients? So I'll say, first of all, I'm going to tell you what I feel that role ought to be, and it's probably going to make some other clinicians unhappy. This is not necessarily how it is, and not everyone agrees with me that this is how it ought to be. I'm, I'm not saying I'm right about everything. I have all the answers. But the way that I see it is, 
we're really taught that we don't. Now, now it's different for social workers, but psychologists, at least, we're really taught that we don't advocate for our clients. We're there in our role in the office and we can help teach the client assertiveness, but then they go and they do the rest. And, you know, yes, we should. It's good to teach people to stand up for themselves, to get the tools to self-advocate. But I also think that it's very important for me to advocate for them as well, because frankly, there are times that my voice is going to weigh more because I'm calling as the professional. I'm calling as the person with a doctorate. Um, I'm calling as the person who did the evaluation and I'm saying, no, this is this is what you need to do. And I, I feel like it's important to advocate for my clients in that way. And so, some feel like that, that, that maybe doesn't empower the client to do it themselves, but I feel that you can do both. And frankly, there have been times where I will encourage the client, here's an opportunity for you to advocate. And they're just not getting anywhere. And I say, listen, if you sign a release, I'll make a phone call. And then the issue is resolved in one phone call. And I don't know why I would put them through making call after call after call, not getting anywhere if I can just call and say, hey, knock it off. And then it works. Yeah. And I think that also perpetuates this idea that you have to be at your wits end uh, before you can ask for help. And, and or, you know, and, and I think that's something that's drilled into us, especially as women, even t- using the example of my daughter and her high grades and still wanting a 504. The same thing happened to my sister-in-law and her daughter. You know, they went to her high school to get a 504. Her grades are fine. And so she didn't get the 504. And I was like, this is terrible. You need to go back there. And the, and the mom was like, I don't have the fight in me. She was like, you know, we'll just see how she's doing. And if her grades start to slip, then we'll go back and we'll talk about it. And I was all up in arms because I'm like, we shouldn't wait until their grades slip because that affects their sense of self, right? She's struggling now. Exactly. And so I'm like, but I think that it kind of perpetuates this idea that like, I have to show how much I am suffering before I can ask for accommodations. And I feel like that that's just the the narrative around accommodations is all wrong, because that's where it's like, you don't have to show that you are impaired in order to want to live your ideal, <laughs> have the ideal situation. Right. Yeah, it's it's the, you know, somebody's got it worse. Therefore, I don't I don't have problems like, well, no, (laughs) someone's always got it worse. And that's that doesn't invalidate what you're going through. I want to get back to the diagnostic criteria, because I I had a chuckle and I was listening to one of your interviews when you were talking about the fact that you were having a hard time getting diagnosed with autism because you're the one who diagnoses in your state. And so you had a hard time finding somebody else. right? <laughs> and so, you know, I'm certainly I'm at the place now where I'm like, do I or don't I with a with an official diagnosis of autism? Same for my daughter. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I have the I don't know if I have the energy to seek it out. It's so difficult. I'm like, what do you notice in terms of adult diagnostic criteria for autism? And like, where do you feel like changes need to be implemented? Officially, there is only one set of criteria for everybody, regardless of your, like the diagnostic criteria are the diagnostic criteria. And again, it's very much based on observation. It's very much written how young children tend to look. It's very much written how young white boys tend to look. And it doesn't, it doesn't account for, first of all, technically, according to the diagnostic criteria, if you can mask, then it's not really autism. And it's like, well, 
no, that's not how these things work. And I mean, I will say, first of all, I I think that self-identifying, if you resonate and you're like, okay, a lot of this really seems to apply to me, that's valid because it is difficult to find someone to do an assessment. It's difficult to find someone who is going to do the assessment in such a way that they're going to acknowledge, you know, even if you're masking, that doesn't mean you're not autistic. You're going to, it's hard to find someone who has that neurodiversity affirming approach and has that acknowledgement of here are the limitations of the research and of the history. There's also risks that come with having that in your medical record. I mean, because yes, discriminating against someone based off of disability status is illegal, but that <laughs> lots of stuff's illegal. Laws don't matter unless they're enforced and it's not a very well-enforced law. There are also laws that blatantly discriminate against autistic people, specifically if they have the diagnosis in their medical chart. Yeah, I remember you talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime I diagnose someone with autism, I have to put them on a government list. So I won't do autism assessments for people who are in North Dakota because I don't see how I can ethically put someone on a government list based on their diagnosis. But the law says that they can require it. And the law says that I have to comply with it. And if I refuse, they can take my license away and they can find me $1,000 for every client that I failed to list. So I, I don't do autism evaluations in North Dakota. And when a referral comes up, I say, hey, call your reps. Because I tried. I tried calling. I tried emailing. I tried contacting the North Dakota legislature. And as soon as they found out that I don't vote in North Dakota, I vote in South Dakota, none of them responded to me because I'm not a constituent. So I let the constituents know you've got a call. <laughs> you have to put the pressure on them because they're not going to listen to me being out of state. But it's fair to not want your kid put on a government list, to not want yourself to be put on a government list, because frankly, they're not very transparent with what they're doing with that information. Supposedly, there's a report, but they haven't updated the report since, I think, 2017. So what have they done with that information for the last six years? I don't know. Well, I like how you were uh, you were talking about how uh, you know, that they're like, we use this information for research. And you're like, interesting. What research? And there was like crickets. <laughs> yeah. What are, you, what are you researching? And they're like, autism. And I'm like... <laughs> First of all, you can't do research on people without getting their informed consent. That's that's a human rights violation. Like <laughs> that's some UN level stuff. By the way, you can email the UN. They won't get back to you, but they have a public address. <laughs> I was going to say I'll put some link to North Dakota legislators for anyone who's listening to this who lives in North Dakota and votes in North Dakota. Yeah. Yeah. Cody Pink is in charge of the autism database. Um, she doesn't answer my emails anymore either, but she's in charge and her contact information is public. And according to a letter that she sent the North Dakota Counselors Association a few years ago, uh, she is open to questions. So Great. Well, good to know. <laughs> if you have questions about the North Dakota autism database, call or email Cody Pinks. She is happy to answer your questions. All right. Uh, fantastic. I'll put that in the show. I'll put that in the show notes. 
that's not uh, whatever instigating harassment because she put that she said I'm the one you should contact if you have questions. So <laughs> it's on the internet. <laughs> Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Now, you're you're also licensed in New Zealand, which I was like, that's random. How did that happen? No. Uh, okay. So in March, well, so I got married in 2019 and in November of 2019, our honeymoon, excuse me, was on the Northern Island of New Zealand. And I got, I connected to this woman and, uh, she was trying to hire a psychologist for a clinic in Wellington. And so I had a job interview on my honeymoon, you know, like you do. Oh, sorry, that, no, sorry, I didn't end up getting that one. But after talking to her, I connected with another clinic in Auckland and they offered me the job and I accepted. Um, And then my husband had found that the organization that he works for has a connection in Auckland as well. So he had applied for that. So in March of 2020, we had both accepted job offers in Auckland. And then the strangest thing happened. I contacted the immigration department and they said, you have to get an immigration physical. And so I contacted my health clinic and I said, I need to get this immigration physical. And they said, uh, today we had our first confirmed community transmission of COVID-19. So we're not doing non-essential procedures. Please call us back in two weeks. <laughs> so it was a very long two weeks. 
And then their immigration office was closed and their psychology board was closed. And and they said, uh, you know, I was reaching, I was trying to figure out, like, how does this work? And the immigration office said, we're only issuing work visas for applicants who are physically in the country. So we need you to basically move here, show up. And then maybe we'll issue you a visa to work, but we can't tell you how long that will take. So I had to either, we had to either give up those jobs or basically move to New Zealand with no money and no income for an indefinite period of time until they approved us. But back when it was only supposed to be two weeks, I submitted my application for licensure. Wow, gosh, it's like the what could have been scenario. But I mean, you got to admit, New Zealand was the only country that didn't fuck up they're dealing with covid i feel like they're, i feel like they're the they dealt with it we had all done like new zealand it actually would have only been two weeks but uh, well if we all did like i did it would have only been two weeks so but i you know i processed i i ended up going non-practicing but then i connected uh with a woman who's actually originally from new york Ashley, and uh, she's living in Christchurch, and she has a, a mental health startup. She's a counselor. And basically, her vision, which is also now my vision, um, is how do we make mental health care affordable and accessible without shortchanging the providers on their income? Because the solution, and we see this in the U.S. as well, the solution to I can't afford treatment has just historically been you got to find a therapist who's willing to just not make a living wage to see you. And then we're called selfish and greedy and evil when we're like, hey, I can't I can't make my mortgage payment if I do that. You know, we're the we're the bad guys then. You know, it's it's not that United Healthcare had record-breaking profits or that the CEO of Blue Cross makes seven figures a year like that's not why there's problems, but uh, basically, what she she has um, a platform that she's built to be an, a mental health resource. We have all kinds of free blogs and articles. Um, it's called a Change for Better. I just realized I never said the name. I'm a terrible marketer. That'll be in the show notes. Don't worry, I've got it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So the the a Change for Better has all these resources. There's a bunch of free resources, and then there's also like. There's a like digital downloads for you know self-led education about mental health, um, books, self-led courses on self-care, things like that, and then a directory which right now is New Zealand specific. The hope is to be everywhere, but to be able to connect people and to properly vet the counselors and the therapists, make sure that everyone has the credentials that they're claiming to have, making sure that people are being transparent, getting informed consent about who they're getting services with, the type of service they're getting, all of that. Um, and then um, the A Change for Better Fund, uh, we earlier this year got charity status in New Zealand. And that's when I activated my license from non-practicing to practicing because the A Change for Better Fund is is a fund. And the the goal is if I need services and I can't afford them, I go to a therapist who the fund has vetted and verified this person has the credentials that they say that they have. This person, you know, practices in a way that's ethical. Uh, this person practices in a way that shares our values as an organization. And the therapist can say, my rate for a session is, say, 
$150. And the client might say, well, I can afford $50. And then the fund then pays the therapist $100 a session so that the person can get the care at the rate they can afford, but the therapist gets paid the amount that they need to be paid to live. Uh, we've been using the fund to supplement the cost of assessments because in New Zealand, there's like a two to three year wait to be evaluated for ADHD or to be evaluated for autism, unless you go the private route, which costs about 3000 New Zealand dollars for an assessment. So first of all, I'm offering it for less because I feel as a provider, as a clinician, that I can be confident about a diagnosis without making you sit through eight hours of testing. Like, I feel like I can get it with less information. So I you know, why, why would I make you sit through something that's not essential to figuring out your diagnosis? And just to clarify, GPs cannot diagnose in New Zealand, correct? It has to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Right, right. Yeah. And um, and even in the U.S., if they don't have the proper training in that specific type of assessment, you know, it's it's very, um, there, there's some limits. You have to have the training to to do the testing and to, you know, do all, it's a whole thing. So what we've been doing, and actually the the funding for my assessments has has mostly been me me volunteering my time. <laughs> it's it's not that the fund is paying me to do these assess. It's that I'm saying, okay, you know, here I'm basically just doing it sliding scale. But the the hope is for the fund to get to the point where other psychologists can join and can get paid again a living wage but people can get an assessment that they can afford and uh so that's that's the dream and uh we're getting there it's been a little complicated because i am licensed in new zealand but i never got over there <laughs> so it's a little bit weird for people that i'm like yes i'm in south dakota but i will be testing you like i have a a page on my website about this where where I'm basically like, I swear I'm not breaking the law. <laughs> like <laughs> here's my licensing information. Here's the board's website where you can input my name and see that I am licensed. New Zealand requires cultural supervision, um, which I think is awesome. And I think that we should do that in I think we should do that everywhere. So I have I have a supervisor to make sure that I'm learning the cultural differences and the the things to be aware of. I also have voluntarily got a second supervisor because a lot of the cultural things that I need to learn are specific to um, Maori people, which is the indigenous people of New Zealand. And I couldn't find a Maori psychologist and the psychology board wouldn't recognize someone who wasn't a psychologist. So I just voluntarily have a second supervisor so that I can, I'm basically paying a Maori woman to teach me <laughs> about her culture. So yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty thorough with all of that, but it's still like, you're halfway across the world. Like, what are you doing? And it's like, well, because I feel very strongly about this. So, <laughs> so I'm curious about Telemental health, the climate around the, the landscape has changed so much so quickly in the last three years since the pandemic. And places like BetterHelp grew out of the pandemic. And now it's like, you know, just I saw your face when I said BetterHelp. You're right. It, they're so problematic. Yeah, so the problem, I love telehealth. Obviously, I've written a lot about it. I've thought about it. I've Same. I think there's so many positives. It's great. But the problem is that, again, 
what's the need and you know how how is an abusive system being upheld by a need people need support people need care and people need to not have to wait forever to get in and these platforms promise that and they do they get you in very quickly but the problem is that they're doing so in a way that's harmful BetterHelp earlier this year was fined 7.8 million dollars for selling therapy client data to advertisers. When you signed up to get therapy from them, they took your information and they claim they never took information from sessions, but I don't think that that matters. They shouldn't have taken any of the information, but they sold pe- they sold therapy clients data to Facebook and to other advertisers. And so they profited. They they took people who were like, I desperately need to see someone and I can't find someone available and accessible and affordable. And they took that vulnerability and they sold people's private confidential medical information to advertisers. Yeah. I And I've heard so many strange, you know, so many anecdotes from clinicians, too, in terms of the, the poor treatment of clinicians from, uh, from BetterHelp, too, that. I'm like, where do you see telehealth going, ideally, in the next few years, especially when it comes to diagnoses, but also treatment? Well, and BetterHelp won't diagnose. And I mean, this isn't specific to BetterHelp. No, I know. I know. They're totally different. I I don't want to lump ADHD online and BetterHelp in the same category, (laughs) because they're definitely not. Oh, oh, God, they're not. They're not comparable at all. First of all, BetterHelp I know they've they've tweaked this a bit, but BetterHelp was illegally providing services across state lines for quite a while. So I'm not I'm surprised that wasn't part of the fine. ADHD Online has never done that. And I'm happy to pick on BetterHelp. They're not the only platform who has done some terrible, terrible things. So they're not the only platform that I that I'm mad at. But telehealth is fantastic for a lot of reasons. I've been doing telehealth in South Dakota since 2016 because we would have people driving three hours each way for a 45-minute therapy session because we're the closest clinic to them. And telehealth, you don't have to get to my office to be able to be seen by me. You know, if you're in a rural area, you, you don't have to get to an office. If you're a therapist who wants to live in a rural area, you could do a telehealth practice and not see people in your own town. And you can go to the grocery store without running into six clients. You can have some more professional boundaries when you do it that way. As long as the licensure stuff is appropriate, you can see someone who specializes, even if you can't reasonably get to their office. You can't, you know, I have a colleague who specializes in pastoral mental health who had clients who struggled with, you know, I don't, what if, what if one of my parishioners sees me in your waiting room and, you know, the, the privacy, I mean, stigma reduction is a whole other topic to address. But in that moment, the client says, I'm concerned about who sees me in your waiting room. And you don't say, well, you just shouldn't, you just shouldn't have stigma around your mental health. You say, okay, well. I can see you from home and then and then nobody's in the waiting room. I work with kids. So kids in families that have a lot of kids don't have to figure out what to do with the siblings. You know, a, a parent can cook dinner while their child has the session. They don't have to like be sitting in the waiting room. They don't have to get it's it's fantastic. It's just that it has to be done ethically like any mental health care. The problem is that the tech Certain corners of the tech industry 
have seen it as an opportunity for profit instead of seeing it as an opportunity to improve access to care. And so they're trying to churn out these services that, again, are claiming to be there to meet this very real need, but instead are doing so in a way that's harming people. Yeah. <laughs> so ADHD online, though, I'm, I'm, I mean, I work for them and I, I hope my last couple rants have made it clear that I'm very particular about who I'll work with. If a company doesn't meet my ethical standards, I will not work with them. By the way, speaking of a change for better, we actually have, um, we're finalizing right now our own ethics code. So basically we said, here are the ethics codes that we have to follow. And here are the things that we feel our ethics code should have higher standards on. And we said, follow those ethics codes and also meet our additional standards. So I take that kind of thing very seriously. Oh, and I think that is very evident in the way ADHD Online talks about diagnoses and and, um, assessment, like just everything in the language to the people I've met in this company, it's head and shoulders above any of the other telehealth. We didn't get investigated like some of those other companies. Like when you look into those investigations, there's a reason we're never on that list. We have I have an I have an email because right after the BetterHelp fine news broke, I every company that I work with, I sent an email and I was like, hey, do you do anything like this? And they were like, absolutely not. And I was like, I figured that was the answer. But I wanted it in writing. <laughs> yeah, you know, for a long time, I promoted BetterHelp because I felt like the good outweighed the bad, right? Where I was like, there's so much benefit to accessibility, especially in a mental health crisis that we're in. But when the red flags just start piling up, <laughs> like at some point. One, one good thing is that BetterHelp was kind of operating in a vacuum for a while. There was nothing else. So it was like, I've never worked for BetterHelp, but when I did my my internship and my postdoc, I was in middle of nowhereville, Arkansas, and I was like, I should probably talk to someone. Well, the only clinic in my town is this one. The only other therapist in driving distance is my boss. So I guess that's not one of the choices. And so I was briefly a client of BetterHelp because it was that was it. (laughs) Yeah. There were no other options. So um, I don't know. I looked into it. The dates that I went are not, I'm not eligible for compensation under that fine. But if you've been a BetterHelp client, look into it because they're going to divvy that fine up among all the the affected people. So check. All right. Get your class action lawsuit money, like do that. But I, yeah, I was a client of theirs and I was like, the first thing I noticed, by the way, was that my therapist was not licensed in Arkansas. Hmm. Interesting. Now, do you know of other um, U.S. based group practices or agencies that are operating more along a change for better in in that same same model? There are some that are good. Uh, basically, what she I mean, and I'm hesitant to endorse someone I haven't worked with because then I get to like see all their operations. But you want to look for HIPAA compliance. You want to read the privacy policy. I know, I know that they're just mind-numbingly boring and they're awful, but you want to read the privacy policy and you want to specifically look at the section on third-party disclosures. They have to have basically a statement of, we do third-party disclosures when it's legally required of us. That's just, that's man. all 50 states have mandated reporting laws. If you tell your therapist, 
that if you're a child and you tell your therapist someone is abusing you, if you're an adult and you tell your therapist that you abused the child, it's illegal for that therapist not to report that. So they have to have provisions for that. They have to have a note that if a judge issues a court order, that they'll comply with the court order. But if they have anything about we sell your information or we we give information to advertisers or we share information, anything outside of what's legally required, we run away. <laughs> now, I didn't write the privacy policy, so I'd have to double check. But there might be like uh, Change for Better has a um, will will sometimes take anonymized data. So they might take like statistics about how many view how many people visited our website from the United States today. And they'll monitor that information for the business's knowledge, but that doesn't include that doesn't say Katie was on the website. That just says X number of people in the United States were on the website. And they're, they're like they're very particular about like anonymized data. You can do a little bit more with before it gets ethically icky. But when you're selling identifiable data, then no. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's a fascinating field. Uh, (laughs) um, I didn't realize I was going to get so riled up from this. Sorry. I do that. I tend to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And this has been so great. So you, I mean, you have, we haven't even talked about the dozen other books you've already written, but uh, very excited for this book to come out in April. It's called A Clinician's Guide to Supporting Autistic Clients. So that, that one came out in October. Um, I've got a children's book about neurodivergence that uh, that just came out recently too. If if we're if we're plugging my stuff in this moment, I can. Yeah, about. is that Slipper the Penguin? Yes, yes. I have. She's on my bookshelf over there. But yeah, she, it's a penguin who who thinks that she's a bad bird because she doesn't fly like her friends, and she learns that she's good at other things, and she can't fly. It's okay that she can't fly. And it's sweet little story. So we've got plushies coming next year. So Oh, I love it. Okay, that's amazing. I feel like penguins are the perfect uh, mascot for neurodivergence because they they skirt convention at every turn. So uh, that's awesome. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and yet we love them. <laughs> <laughs> and we love them for it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And good to meet you we'll do this do this again sometime yes please but good luck with the book and all the best in the new year thank you there you have it thank you for listening and i really hope you enjoyed this episode of the women and adhd podcast if you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs head over to women If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. 
Take care till then. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself.